Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Joseph McHale from the Translational Genomics Research Institute and the International Myeloma Foundation, and Dr. Suzanne Lynch from Columbia University in New York City. They will be discussing the role of BCMA-targeted therapy for patients with multiple myeloma, with a focus on how they are implementing these approaches in their clinical practice. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Smarter, Stronger, Together, Optimizing Multiple Myeloma Care and Addressing Health Disparities Through Education. For more information on these experts, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set, expert commentaries, and other activities and resources, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. My name is Dr. Joseph McHale. I'm a professor at the Translational Genomics Research Institute and the Chief Medical Officer of the International Myeloma Foundation. It's a privilege today to host this podcast entitled, How to Apply BCMA-Directed Strategies and the Practical Use of BCMA-Targeted Therapies in Multiple Myeloma. Joining me today is a world expert in multiple myeloma and a very dear friend, Dr. Suzanne Lynch. Welcome, Suzanne. It's great to have you. Thank you, Joe, for having me here today. Again, my name is Suzanne Lynch. I'm a professor of medicine at Columbia University in New York City, and I'm leading the multiple myeloma and amyloidosis program at Columbia University. It's always great to spend some time with you, Suzanne. I really look forward to your insights as we really talk about pragmatic sides of BCMA. We will be indeed talking about some of the data that supports our use of these agents, but really the focus today is going to be much more on what it means for the practicing clinician. How is it that we administer these therapies? What are the challenges we face? And whom will we use it? How do we sequence these therapies? And what really is the future of these therapies, both in CAR T-cell therapy and in bispecific therapies? But before we dive into the details, let's just quickly level set and make sure we're all on the same page as we talk about this notion of BCMA or B-cell maturation antigen. What is BCMA? BCMA is an antigen that is on the surface of myeloma cells. As its name implies, it's really confined to mature B-cells, and so it provides itself as being quite an attractive target in that most healthy tissues will not express BCMA. And it has really become a very important target in our fight against multiple myeloma. For many years, we didn't have many cell surface targets. We've been more recently targeting CD38 and SLAMF7, previously known as CS1 or cell surface 1. But now BCMA has become a very attractive target for multiple immune therapies, whether we've targeted it through antibody drug conjugates, through CAR T-cell therapy, or through bispecific therapies. And so today we'll be focusing most of our discussion on these CAR Ts and bispecifics. And quickly, by way of review, CAR T-cell therapy is when we collect T-cells from a patient and we manufacture them in the lab such that they target BCMA, and then we can multiply them in the lab and then a few weeks later reinfuse them to patients to help destroy their myeloma. Whereas in bispecific therapies, as opposed to the need of autologous T-cell collection and taking the lab and manufacturing, we just take a drug off the shelf which has two arms, one arm that hooks to the myeloma by virtue of the BCMA, and the other arm engages a local T cell and activates it to help 
destroy the multiple myeloma. So these are the strategies that we'll be discussing. And at the very end, we'll actually talk about other new ways and new targets actually that are being developed out of the rubric that we've had with BCMA to further treat multiple myeloma. So Suzanne, with that quick background, as we think about how we're now using the two approved CAR T-cell therapies that we have, Idacel and Siltacel, as well as the one at least currently approved BCMA targeted by specific to clistamab, before we even talk about its practical use, I think we have to address the issue of access, because I know this has been a real problem, especially out in the community. Some of our academic centers may have greater access, but maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges we've had in accessing these three agents in particular for our patients with relapsed refractory myeloma. Joe, thank you so much. That's an absolute critical aspect of treating our patients with BCMA drugs, antibodies, and CAR T cells. We had Belantamab approved, and we were very excited to have at least before a broad access to CAR T cells and before Teclistamab was approved, to have one BCMA medication available for our drugs. Unfortunately, that was taken from the market. So some of the patients really had benefit from Valentamab. And we were especially starting to use this in combination with pomalidomide and so great responses. It's unfortunate that right now we don't have Valentamab available for the treatment of our patients. I still have hope that it might come back because especially for older patients, it was a very well-tolerated medication. Access is an issue. Teclistamab was approved to BCMA by specific antibody recently, but the treatment is somehow more difficult because it requires a around 10-day hospital stay. We in New York always have problems to get appropriate bed availability to admit the patient to start the treatment with teclistamab. And most of the smaller practices still struggle with how to integrate teclistamab into their practice. Do they collaborate with a larger hospital in order to admit the patient? And how do they do that in smaller private practices to continue teclistamab? So I think we have to learn by doing a little bit how we apply teclistamab. We still put all the patients in a hospital for 10 days to be on the safe side, but maybe new data will show that 10 days is not really necessary, especially if the first medication or the first infusion is well tolerated. Coming to CAR T cells, still an issue in clinical trials, slot availability, availability, but also outside of clinical trials. I think it's getting better a little bit, but still we cannot really use CAR T cells as we would like to. No, I think you make some excellent points. And I think that one of the key points you made is that this thankfully is evolving, hopefully in the right direction. With the November withdrawal of Volantamab from the market, it really has reduced the more simple access to BCMA-directed therapies, but I agree with you that it may come back. But with respect to teclistamab, as you've mentioned, it really is an evolving story. I have the privilege of being connected to multiple centers across the country in the work that I do. And many of now are really trying to find different ways to reduce that hospitalization that you've described. And in some cases, even eliminate it. Now, granted, they typically have almost outpatient slash inpatient units, right? Units that are technically outpatient, but essentially function as an inpatient unit so that they can avoid the normal hospitalization. And the key point here, of course, is that we're trying to ensure that, especially in the first few doses, that patients don't experience significant cytokine release syndrome, or if they do, that they're in a monitored setting to be able to 
capture it. So I do think the story is still being told about how we administer bispecific therapies. And my hope and goal is with time that we're going to see it more extensively used in the community without having to start at the academic setting and maybe not even have to start in hospital. And then lastly, as you noted with CAR T-cell therapy, it is really challenging. And I think we're over the hump. We know that some of the manufacturing challenges in the past because of competing variables with vaccines have passed. But now really the manufacturing issue is actually having individuals in these specialized labs to manufacture CAR T's. And I believe that will likely be considerably better by the end of 2023, but there'll still be a bottleneck for this year. And so I think that's important to note because many times, whether someone's in the community or an academic setting, they just think, oh, here's my patient. They have four prior lines of therapy. They should be immediately available for CAR-T, which is really what the essential criterion are that they have four lines of therapy and have been exposed to the three major classes of immunomodulatory drugs, proteasome inhibitors, and monoclonal antibodies, but then they just can't find a slot. And many academic settings only have a few slots per month. And so in the interim, it's making it challenging for us to care for these patients while slots are opening, but we do hope more of those slots will open before long. I do want to ask you, Suzanne, though, about this real-world application of this, right? One of the things we always see in every cancer, in particular myeloma, is Okay, that was what was done in the clinical trial. That was the criteria for the trial. That was the specifics of the trial. But now as I apply it in real life, do we see the same efficacy and can we broaden the audience, right? Many of our strategies, for example, limited patients on the clinical trials based on their renal function or certain aspects. Can we give this more pragmatically in the clinic? And there was an interesting a recent report on real-world data using IDACEL, and I wondered, Suzanne, if you want to comment a little bit about how effective was this strategy. I mean, we saw unprecedented response rates with CAR T-cell therapies in clinical trials, 70, 80, 90% of patients with very heavily pretreated disease responding. Is this what we're actually seeing in real life? Yeah, I think the majority of data should come from clinical trials when we make decisions. But in terms of CAR T cells, I think the real world data are really very helpful. And there was an excellent study initiated by Doris Hansen. She presented data from patients receiving IDA cell at the last International Myeloma Workshop at ASH last year. And she published her data in JCO recently. So they reported 196 patients from multi center retrospective analysis and what was the outcome when they received IDA cell. And they found in their study that 77%, which is the majority, of their patients would not be study eligible for the KARMA trial when they used the inclusion criteria of the KARMA trial. And the most common reasons were comorbidities, cytopenias, prior BCMA-targeted therapy. And I think those data are really important because that's the real-world patient we see each day. And the toxicity they observed, again, it was 82% CRS, pretty much what we usually see in clinical trials majority of the patient of those CRS are lower grade. Neurotoxicity was 18%. But what is more important, the overall response rate is pretty much what we also see in clinical trial. This IDA cell, 86%, CR rate was 42%, and the median progression-free survival was 8.9 months. That's exactly what was also reported in clinical trial. So I think Dr. Hansel reported very encouraging data that Patients who are not even eligible for a clinical trial, maybe they have more comorbidities, more cytopenias, have in principle the same 
outcome, progression-free survival, and also response rate than patients in clinical trials. So very nice data and helpful for our everyday patient. I think that's really fundamental that we do that. And I agree with you when we come to approve drugs and so on, we need the right trials. But there's always a bit of this suspicion. Is it really as good as they say it is when it comes to real life? And I agree with you. I think this study was very impressive to see these kinds of response rates in patients that haven't had to be on trial. That's really quite impressive. I think the other angle that's also important in light of the two things we've discussed, the access issue, but also a real world issue is what do we do in terms of sequencing here? It becomes a bit of a challenge. We have people that have been treated with BCMA-directed strategy, typically with, let's say, MAB before the withdrawal by the FDA in November. And we think to ourselves, can we go to another BCMA strategy? Like, can we take someone to CAR-T after they've had belantamab? And yet another abstract was presented in this light. Maybe you can shed a bit more detail to us on this, but it again justified the potential use of using this very intense strategy with CAR-T even in patients that had had belantamab. So maybe you can talk a bit about that Ferrari abstract. Yeah, that's always the question. What can we do if we use ticlistamab, for instance? Can we still do CAR T-cell trials? And unfortunately, we don't really have data from clinical trials because most of the patients who received the BCMA treatment were excluded from other clinical trials. So we have very limited data. So that's why, again, our real-world data are really important. And Dr. Ferrari presented some data last ESH, and he looked for the outcome of patients receiving IDA cell after BCMA therapy. So in 193 patients, he identified 49 patients who received IDA cell. And what he found was really important. The PFS in patients receiving IDA cell after antibody drug conjugates was only 3.2 months, so a very dismal outcome. And patients who received IDA cell after bispecifics, the PFS median was 2.8 months. I think this is really a result that is not encouraging to use CAR T cells after BCMA therapy. So I think we should really take that into account when we plan the future treatment. What is helping us is really the fact that we have new targets for bispecifics, but also for CAR T cells, but maybe discuss that later a little bit. Absolutely. But I think to balance that a little bit, if we think of the data that was presented by Adam Cohen, similarly looking at using CAR T strategies after patients had BCMA-directed therapy, it was a little bit more encouraging. There was still over a 60% response rate, may not have been the 80 and 90% response rate we've been seeing before. So I think to me, the lesson out of this is it's not ideal to immediately go from one BCMA strategy to another, but it can be done, especially in a context when we have limited options for patients. And especially now with this, as we've discussed before, access issue, I think it is still worth considering. But in an ideal world, I think we would not at least go immediately from one to the other. Part of the work that we do in our lab, in my institution, is we're trying to understand BCMA resistance and what are the genetic patterns. And interestingly, we are starting to see that some of these different BCMA therapies actually do have different patterns of resistance. So we may be able to sequence some after the other, but it's going to take us a while to figure out those exact details. And while we're waiting on those details, as there are so many different BCMA biospecifics being built, I think we just want to be 
judicious in our use of these things and cautious, as you've said, Suzanne, to make sure that we don't immediately go from one to another where it may put a patient in a situation where they're only going to have a few months response. So I think the jury's still out a little bit on that side of things. And I always joke, you put 10 myeloma doctors in a room and you have 12 opinions. We definitely have 12 opinions when it comes to BCMA sequencing. But I do think it's important for us to recognize some of the limitations, but that when we're faced with so few options, one still can go from a bispecific to CAR-T and vice versa, may just not always be the ideal situation. Yeah. One caveat, though, I want to say is when you compare the data, I think what you see also here is that one study focused on IDA cell and the other one on SILTA cell. And looking at Adam Cohen's data, in which he showed 20 patients receiving SILTA cell after bispecific BCMA treatment, the overall response rate is 60%, which is dropping from 97, what we saw before with SILTA cell. And the progression-free survival rate, nine months. So you're absolutely right. The jury is still out. But I think we also see when we compare those data that there are some differences between IDA cell and SILTA cell. I'm not sure how you see that, Joe, but I think that SILTA cell has a little bit stronger data. I think there's both biological and pragmatic rationale to that. I do agree with you. I saw a patient the other day who is going to have access to one of the two of them and said to me, oh, Dr. Joe, should I not go with Ida cell and go with Silta cell? I said, in many respects, you have a choice between a Ferrari and a Lamborghini here. They're both very good choices. And the overwhelming majority of patients, especially who haven't had access to a BCMA therapy, they're great choices. But I do agree with you. We are going to learn more about the differences between them going forward. The last point about real-world evidence that I wanted to ask you a little bit about, Suzanne, was the whole notion of renal insufficiency and even to the degree of dialysis. We know that a third of patients over the course of their myeloma career, sadly, will have significant renal insufficiency. And that number is even a little bit higher when we look at people eligible for these CAR-Ts who have had four or five, six prior lines of therapy. And in the trials, most of these patients were excluded Often there was a cutoff of a creatin clearance of 45, but Serbi Sedana presented some very interesting work about using CAR T-cell therapy in patients with advanced renal insufficiency. And I wonder if you can comment on that a little bit. Yeah, I really like the data from Dr. Sedana. We all know that the biggest problem we have in multiple myeloma and clinical trials is renal insufficiency. And she really did a nice job. She looked for real-world examination of CAR T-cells in patients with renal insufficiency analyzed over 200 patients and compared what the outcome is of patients who had a creatinine clearance less than 50 milliliters per minute and above. And what she showed very nicely is that the outcome of patients with renal insufficiency receiving CAR T-cell treatment is the same. So the progression-free survival rate was not different in patients with renal insufficiency and without. It was 8.1 months versus 6.5. So in principle, there was no difference. I think this is really important data, not only for us to say that there is the same outcome and we can present that to patients, but also for insurance. Because some insurances start to really find reasons not to approve certain treatments. For instance, the patient is not eligible. We cannot approve it because the patient does not meet criteria that were used for the study. We can go back and can say, here are real-world data. And despite the patient has real insufficiency or is on dialysis, the patient should benefit from CAR T-cell treatment. So very nice data. And I'm very grateful for her to do that job and focusing on the real-world data. I couldn't agree with you more. Beautifully said, Suzanne. I can think of a couple of patients right now in my clinic who 
thus far not been able to have access to this therapy because of their renal insufficiency. And I really hope that this helps turn that tide. We've been talking about how effective BCMA-directed strategies are, CAR T-cell therapy and biospecifics in particular. We've talked about how we've been applying them into the real world. What we see in the real world reflects what we saw in the clinical trials. We saw that there's some limitations with sequencing. We've seen that even patients on dialysis can benefit from the strategy. Let's balance a bit of this conversation, Suzanne, too, with some of the challenges with both of these drugs, namely their adverse events of which the key ones are CRS or cytokine release syndrome, when typically soon after the patient is given the drug, sometimes within minutes to hours, that they experience this response, this immune response called cytokine release syndrome. Patients can experience neurotoxicity either in the short term and the long term, and we've seen some differences between these molecules and how they guide that. And then perhaps one that we initially didn't appreciate quite the magnitude of it, whereas the risk of infections both in the short term and the long term, especially with biospecifics now as we're treating people for longer periods of time, we're seeing people get into great responses, but still experiencing very significant infections because they're so immunosuppressed. And then there are some patients in particular after CAR T-cell therapy that experience longer term hematologic toxicities where they really remain cytopenic for longer periods of time. I wonder, Suzanne, obviously we could spend a whole hour talking about this. Your work in New York What guidance do you have for the community around these adverse events with both CAR-T and biospecifics? Yeah, Joe, you are absolutely right. And I'm very grateful that you mentioned that topic. I think we focused so much on CRS, on ICANS, that we completely missed, I would say, most devastating side effect of the biospecific antibodies, especially infection is the biggest problem of the biospecifics. Infection is also for CAR-T cells. But since the time of neutropenia is limited and have T-cells which you reinfuse and target directly the tumor, I think the infection risk is a little bit less pronounced in comparison to bispecifics. But in bispecifics, we learned that, I would say, the hard way. We participated in several clinical trials using the bispecifics and suddenly all of our patients were very sick and we had to deal with infections we never saw before. We didn't really expect EBV, CMV, PCP, for instance. So what we decided to do, everybody who is on a bispecific antibody receives IVIG. And patients who are really high risk, for instance, they are older, frail. Most of them we put really on prophylactic antibiotics. And we talk to the patient and we say, if you experience any fever, if you do not feel well, let us know. So we are really trying to manage the patient carefully in terms of infections. And I think that is really important to give the message to the community once teclistamib is used in a broader spectrum. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's so relevant to this podcast because for the community oncologist or hematologist, they may not be initiating these early therapies in the first few cycles. And so they may not have to deal with a lot of the cytokine release syndrome or even the neurotoxicity issues. But that ongoing risk of infection is important. It's so important to have a partnership with the academic center, or even if they're ultimately doing it themselves, it's really important to make sure we have a partnership with our patients to report fevers for us to be following their immunoglobulin levels, as you've mentioned, because I do think in the long term, this is going to be a challenge. Yeah. And maybe, Joe, another aspect is also most of the clinical trials treated patients indefinitely. I'm not so sure whether this concept is really the best approach. Remember, the patients are treated in a relapse refractory situation where we 
probably don't assume that we cure the patient. So we want to induce a remission. And why not stopping if the patient is in a CR or MID negative? That would allow that the patient re-expresses BCMA. And maybe in a case of relapse, you can retreat the patient. But I think the concept of treating indefinitely might not be the best. That brings me back to what you said initially. We should not forget BCMA is expressed also on B cells. So you do not only wipe out the malignant plasma cells, also the normal plasma cells and also the B cells. So what you induce in those patients is the deficiency of the B cells and the T cells because you engage the T cells with your antibody. So maybe limited treatment is one of the other tools to limit infections in those patients. You've beautifully said it, Suzanne, and you've created a great segue to our last segment, which is really looking forward to the future of these therapies. And I think the first element you've mentioned is really important, that maybe the strategy that initially we've thought of with BCMA by specifics to treat dull progression should be questioned. And as newer molecules are being developed, many of them have looked at this, as many of the BCMA-directed by specifics in development are looking at either giving it less frequently or giving it only for a defined period of time, six months, 12 months, 18 months. All these different timeframes are being looked at in clinical trials. And if we're going to try to predict the future, I agree with you. I'm going to predict that in the future, we're not going to say that patients on biospecifics need treatment forever. And one of the greatest benefits we've had with CAR T-cell therapy is that one and done approach. People get treated and they come off therapy. And the number of patients that have said to me, Dr. Joe, I love being on nothing. It's such a great drug and every insurance company covers it. And every patient is very adherent to taking nothing. Obviously, I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek, but it is quite remarkable that we can have a situation where maybe we'll be able to take patients off therapies. But as we look into the future, Suzanne, in our last couple of minutes here, I'd like us to think a little bit about what's coming. We're already seeing clinical trials being done where we're bringing these therapies earlier on. We saw, for example, the KARMA-2 cohort 2A study that was presented at ASH where patients were given IDACEL at first relapse, in particular, the highest risk patients who relapsed within 18 months of their diagnosis. And we did still see a very strong signal of response in these patients. And so I think one of the phases we're going to see, which we've seen in all drug development in myeloma, is that drugs prove themselves in very heavily relapsed patients and move themselves up earlier. And I think we're seeing this also with bispecifics. But I would like your commentary for a moment, Suzanne, on not just bringing them earlier on, which I think we're naturally going to see with the drugs that we have, Idacel, Siltacel, and Teclistimab. But what about these new targets? There are two other targets that are being heavily developed in myeloma, the GPRC5D and FCRH5. Do you think those are going to play a big role in our use of both CAR-T and bispecifics? That's a super interesting topic. And I think, Joe, when we talked earlier about sequencing of BCMA, CAR T cells after bispecifics, ADCs, vice versa, maybe in the near future, that discussion will be history because we have very interesting and exciting targets on the horizon. I personally was very excited about data presented at ASH last year by Dr. Cherry. So he showed data of the monumental trial in which telquatamab was tested and telquatamab is a GPRC5D, bispecific antibody, also targeting T-cells. 
and it's a completely new target. So we could circumvent all the problems with BCMA drug resistance by using new targets such as telquatamab. And the data are very cool because what we see is, first of all, a very high response rate. Patients were heavily pretreated, as you can imagine, but patients had over 70% response rate with almost a 60% VGPR. Very nice data on around 300 patients, what he presented. So that means you have a completely new target that is in the fourth, fifth line treatment still so efficient that almost 60% have a VGPR. And the most important part is that GPRC5D is not expressed on the B cells or earlier B cells. So it's specifically for the multiple myeloma for plasma cells and less problems with infection rate. So I was again very excited about telquatamab and other bispecific antibodies. I yeah. agree. I think this is really important. We can't get into all of the studies today, but that GPRC5D target is also now being used for CAR T-cell strategies as well. So I think your point is particularly valuable in that if we do exhaust, if you will, to some degree, BCMA, it's nice to have another target in GPRC5D and yet another target in FCRH5. So another drug, Savostamab, that many of us have been using in clinical trial has also been really particularly valuable targets so that we can, again, treat patients who have had previous BCMA. And now we're starting to see numbers in clinical trials where patients are being included who had previously had a BCMA. And even in novel molecules that aren't necessarily bispecifics. And the Medacafus study that was presented, this is really old school and new school together. It's like a monoclonal antibody similar to dertumumab or isotuximab because it targets CD38, but attached to it is interferon but delivered in a much more precise way. And in that study, there were several patients who had previously had BCMA strategies that still had a response rate of over 40%. So I think, yes, access is a problem in the short term. Yes, we need to find ways to sequence within BCMA, but I think having these other targets are going to be really helpful to us in the future as we think a little bit about GPRC5D, FCRH5, and whatever other target we may discover with time. So the future is particularly bright in myeloma. Suzanne, before we wrap up, I'm going to see if you have any final concluding thoughts. Again, I'm very excited about the new targets for the bispecific and also for the CAR T cells such as telquatamab and sevostamab, I think that will really take care of the whole discussion of BCMA sequencing. We will be done with that. We give a BCMA CAR T cells and maybe we give telquatamab, which is a GPRC5D bispecific antibody. My concern is what do we do when we totally exhaust the T cells? The immune system probably can only give so much of response rates. Maybe we go back and have the good old targets like rest mutations, but I think the future is very bright for our multiple myeloma patients and immunotherapy probably will be used early and I'm very excited about that. I'm excited about it too, Suzanne. We're even doing trials now where we're randomizing patients to CAR T-cell therapy instead of stem cell transplant. We may be dispensing with more conventional therapies with time. And then lastly, on your final point, we are pretty much exhausting these T-cells. And I have a clinical trial, for example, now where we're looking at NK or natural killer cell engagers which may yet provide another opportunity with either the same or different targets, but now using different immune cells. Well, I hope that everyone listening to this podcast has benefited today as we've thought through some of the pragmatic and practical issues of BCMA-directed strategies. 
whether they are antibody drug conjugates or bispecific antibodies or CAR T-cell therapies. And I think Dr. Lynch put it so beautifully that the future is very bright in myeloma. She's excited about it. I'm excited about it. And we trust that this will be better therapies for our patients to provide deeper and more durable remissions. Thank you very much for joining us today. And we trust this has been of value to you as you care for your patients. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Dr. McHale and Dr. Lynch, for a great discussion. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, view the full program, Smarter, Stronger, Together, optimizing multiple myeloma care and addressing health disparities through education, and to access additional resources associated with this program from the website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.